Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello again, and welcome to My Time Capsule. My name's Mike Fenton-Stevens, and this is the podcast where I talk to various people about the five things that they've chosen to preserve in a time capsule. They can pick anything from any time in their life, but they have to pick four things that they cherish and one thing that they rather regret, something they'd like to forget something they want to bury in the ground and never have to think about again. My guest in this episode is the stand-up comedian Josie Long, who started stand-up at the age of 14 and won the BBC New Comedy Award at 17. She won the Edinburgh Festival Best Newcomer Award in 2006 and has since been nominated for Best Show three times. Josie gave up stand-up for a while so she could do a degree in English at Oxford University, but returned to live stand-up soon after graduating, supporting Stuart Lee in 2005. She's toured all over the country and much of the world, constantly winning awards on the way. Josie's launched her own comedy clubs and written her own radio show. Josie's also written for the Channel 4 drama Skins, and she makes the podcast Robin and Josie's Utter Shambles with Robin Ince, a previous guest on My Time Capsule. In 2018, Josie had a daughter with her partner, comedian Johnny Donahoe. Of course, there's plenty more I could tell you about Josie, but I think I'll let her do that as we listen to the five things she'd like to put in her very own time capsule. Have fun. That's the thing, you don't want people who knew you at school to still be knocking about and have anecdotes. Talking of school. 
the last time I chatted to a Newstead Woods girl oh, wow. <laughs> was when I was feeling brave at a party in Ainsford. Oh, yeah. Lovely river. Lovely. Fishing there <laughs> on the Ford because I went to Ramsden. Oh, no way. Really? Are you from St Mary Cray? Yeah. I'm from St Mary Cray. I know. Wow. Oh, my God. That's amazing. <laughs> Hang on. I want to know what road you lived on. I want to know everything. Well, I lived on um, the Grassmead Estate. Oh, yeah. Next to Ramsden, but by the convent. I lived in Allard Close. <gasps> I know exactly where that is. Oh, I used to live so near to there. We lived um, in Austin Road, which was... Um, it's on the Poverest Estate, so it's over the other side of the park. Right. Oh, amazing. Isn't that funny? Wow. How long have your parents been there? No, they only moved when we were little kids. They didn't grow up there. That would have right. been so cool if they'd have been at the yeah, same school. It would have been amazing, wouldn't it, have actually? I yeah. went, oh, God, yeah, I know your dad. <laughs> it's a funny place. Did you, did you find... See, I always feel bad talking about it because part of me's like... I just was desperate to get out. And now I'm an adult, I feel really bad that, like, my chat of where I'm from is like, I just yeah. wanted to leave. <laughs> but, but, you know, who wouldn't, really? <laughs> there's, no. there's not so much in the way of culture. We're both talking about a time, no mobile phones, you would just stand in the high street, buy a telephone booth, and that's where you're going to meet <laughs> someone, hoping the girl wouldn't let you down. Me and my friend Tasha, who's, like, my best friend in the world, and she and I learnt all the numbers or had all the numbers written down of the phone booths in Charing Cross Station. So that <laughs> what we would do is we would call them if we knew we were going to be really late. And it must have been an hour's late because we would have still been at home to do it. But yes. we would call the phone booth and wait for a stranger to pick up and then say, okay, so there's a girl, she's got brown hair, she's 15, she's probably wearing boots, can you go and get her for me? And people would do it. Like It, it was a, a reliable system. It worked. <laughs> if Nokia had only known that. Yeah, they could have saved themselves all kind of bother, you know. <laughs> oh, brilliant, yes. We felt that girls from your school, they were sort of uh, beyond our league. Oh, wow. It, you know. <laughs> it's a funny thing. I've got a sister and then I've got stepsisters and I've got a brother who's my half-brother and I was the only one in the family that went to the grammar school mm. and it was quite alienating in a way because it's such an odd ecosystem in that borough yes. where it's like, right, these people, they're having that experience. You're having that experience. And, and I think it's so polarised. And- it was astonishingly polarised. I mean, I remember because that's, you know, so we're talking to secondary modern school. My brother went to Cray Valley yeah. to technical school. So that was the next step up. And then there was the grammar school. So I was regarded as lowest of the low, you know. At 11 years old. And yet, strangely enough, only a few years later, found myself playing Orlando in As You Like It in the gardens of Lady Margaret Hall College. No way! You've been at all my places just, Isn't that weird? just, just, just before, just before you. me. Wow, did, were you at LMH as well? No, no, I was Brooks. Oh, nice. I snuck into auditions for things and they said, which college are you at? And I went, I'm at Trinity College. <laughs> and they went, what was that? Do you know who did that? Do you know about Tim Key? No. Tim Key did not go to Cambridge and was in the Cambridge Footlights. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, maybe it's myth, but I, I'm fairly certain that he went to Sheffield Uni and then he lived in Cambridge or was near Cambridge and did the exact same thing and basically was a part of the touring show because he was so good. I mean... That is exactly what I did. I basically got in and once I was in, they didn't care. Oh, yeah. 
course, because no one would give a damn. No. But, yeah. But we, with oh, my enormous brilliant. chip on the shoulder, I thought, oh, they're going to, in no way they're going <laughs> to let me in. You're like, I'll show those poshos. Yeah. I was practising the posh accent and everything, you know. My friend who went to Cambridge, he's from Northern Ireland, had the same thing where people would say, where did you go to school? And you didn't realise that that was a class signifier. So you'd go, Orpington. Yeah. And they'd be like, right, okay, that doesn't mean anything. No. And you'd be like, oh, sorry. No, it's weird, isn't it? I do remember Mm. going to Queen's College and went to a party there in somebody's rooms, which to me Mm. was an extraordinary (gasps) idea. Yeah. They had rooms. Well, I should say we didn't have that at my college and I felt really cheated. I was I like, bet. what? You guys have having some sort of rarefied... Where's my man? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. So I was in this place and I was chatting to a man and he asked me exactly which school did you go to? And I said, um, uh, Ramsden. And he went, Ramsden, where's that? I said, it's in Orpington. It's a secondary modern school. And he stopped the party. He went, oh, oh my word. Everybody, everybody, listen, Mike here went to a secondary... That actually makes me quite angry. Like, Mm -hmm. it's so brutal. Like, and it's so fucking bleak that that person... Like, this was my problem a bit when I was there. I... I have a few things I look back because I found out I had I have ADHD and I'm like, ah, that would have been useful to know when I was young. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, one of the problems I had there was I would often sort of find that the least remarkable people there were these people who'd come from privilege and just at the time it was easier to digest. But then since we've all left and seeing like there's a couple of people who were really like you'd think, wow, they've really got in because of their school or whatever. And then now they're professional contrarians. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, oh, we have to sit through another 30 years of you doing this to me. This is so awful. Yeah. Um, have you read, Misa Rokwonga has written this really great memoir about going to Eton. No. Because he's somebody who came from like, his mum was a doctor, but his family were refugees from Uganda. Mm. And, and so he had like a really complicated growing up experience. And then when he was about 10, he saw a documentary about Eton. He was like, I want to go there. And he just <laughs> sort of managed to do it. But he wrote this really brilliant book about how basically the kids that he knew at school who were monsters are now monsters in public life and how he feels really guilty that at school, people who knew all the time that they were didn't kind of stop them when they were before they became too powerful yeah i'm not going to name any names but we've all got associates from those times where you go oh that's why you're uh well i'll give it away if i say (laughs) cut it out (laughs) (laughs) so um are you happy with the idea of this it's a very simple idea really i hope Uh, yes although i i've got two that are definite Mm. And then the other three, I've been really racking my brain, so I'm hoping that they'll materialise as I do it. Yeah, it'll come organically. And for me, this is the best moment because I have no idea what people are going to say. I never ask people to tell me. And I like that. I like the um, <laughs> the danger of it. Oh, cool. <laughs> and well, I can show you the first one. Yeah. Because I think it's really silly. So this first one, this is a framed photo. And I'll have to describe it because I'm aware this is an audio medium. Yes. But it's, um, <laughs> it's a framed photo. And it's two girls um, who I would estimate to be 11, maybe 12. Mm-hmm. And they're on a ride at Breen Leisure Park, which was called the Magic Mouse, which I'm, I'm sure you're really aware of Breen Leisure Park, you know, who isn't? And the Magic Mouse is their real, you know, there's their drawer, that's their nemesis. Everybody aims to do that ride. Of, of course. You know, it's what you want to do in life. You couldn't go to Breen without 
hitting up the magic nuts. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a bucket list ride. Um, and on it, so they're about 11 and one of them uh, has brown hair. She's she's wearing a sort of leopard print scarf and the other one has maybe gingery blonde hair. And one of them is like flicking the Vs and really boldly doing it. And the other one is... She's got one hand on her cheek <laughs> and she's flipping the bird. Yes. And she looks like she's sort of a little bit more coy about it. Like she can't believe that they're doing this. Right? <laughs> and I have to firstly say, I don't know these girls at all. <laughs> and that I was on this ride after them. And this is the photograph that comes up. You know, everybody gets a photograph taken at a certain point. Yes, exactly. And firstly, I'm like, these girls knew exactly when it was coming because <laughs> usually these, they catch you in the act, don't they? They catch you screaming or with your head to one side. These girls, they knew when it was coming and they posed and they posed in a way that was so naughty. <laughs> and uh, it was because um, in 2010 I was on tour and it was a really great tour. I was with them. Um, my friend James Acaster, mm. who is since stratospherically yeah, uh, famous. I know. I shared a venue with him at Edinburgh. Everybody was suddenly going, have you seen oh, James wow. Acaster? It was brilliant to watch. Yes, and it's exciting, I think. Yeah. And also he's such a lovely man and just the way he works on his stand-up is really inspiring. I think he's really diligent and he's really sort of never, ever finishes a bit. Yeah. He's always kind of... Tinkering. And I was with him and I was with a friend of mine called Johnny Lynch. He's a musician called The Pictish Trail. And it was such a brilliant tour. It was sort of some wonderful memories. Like the show was fun. We had loads of laughs. I swam in loads of rivers, which is my favourite thing. <laughs> we also had a car crash where we nearly died, which is less fun, but was still a bonding experience. Yeah. Anyway, we did this thing and we were going to buy our photo. And then I saw that one. And the, I said to the woman who was behind the counter, I said, can I buy that one? And she was like, I don't care. Of course you can. And I was like, <laughs> oh, okay. And then she said, look, if it was him buying it, I'd have had to say no. <laughs> because, it, she, because I guess she, the implication is like a man buying it, that's dodgy. But you buying it, fine. <laughs> anyway, so I bought this picture of two teenagers and I don't know who they are. I think they must be in their mid-20s now. And... And the reason is just I love everything about it. I love their attitude. I love her hesitancy. And I feel like something in it is just the epitome of what it is to be that age and all of the awkwardness <laughs> and all of the like that that's their big rebellion and it's nothing but also it's kind of a big success it's printed out yeah and it was worth at the time eight pounds you know <laughs> and it drew you in yeah and i framed it and i'm gonna put it up in my office wow like, this is so much i love it yeah so i just thought it was a fun thing and it, it reminds me a lot of like nice times in my work but also just I just would never not think it's hilarious that they did it and that I was allowed to buy it. <laughs> yeah. So if you look at your history, you must have not been that girl, though. You must have been a good girl. Yeah, I was, definitely. Yeah. I was very, uh, I was sort of a grammar school girl and I worked very hard and I loved school. But I, I think I, I'm somebody who really wants to, like, have my cake and eat it. My favourite thing in life is a buffet because you don't have to commit to one dinner. You, know? <laughs> you have every dinner. Yeah. No one can stop you, you know. And so similarly, I think I wanted to be very good and I was head of house at my school. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I also wanted to like 
have times when I felt like I was being really delinquent. So yeah. I used to go out to a lot of gigs and clubs when I was a young teenager and go and do comedy and stuff. Yeah, you started incredibly early, didn't you? Yeah, I did. I started when I was... Well, I sort of started writing it and performing it at a workshop when I was 14. Wow. That was great. But I was just a very precocious, annoying child who wanted to have attention. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to be an academic, but also I could be funny. Yeah, exactly. It was like, I'll do I'll do everything. <laughs> I'll play the clarinet. <laughs> very bad. Right. My mum my had a lot of aspirations for me and my sister to be kind of quite like Jane Austen and to sort of make us quite middle class. And so she tried really hard to get us to have accomplishments, like genuinely playing instruments and uh, uh, doing embroidery and stuff. <laughs> but it's just not the same. It's not like 1724. So no, quite... my word, you are so superb at the gavotte. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> With something never said in the um, McDonald's on Orpington High Street, to my dismay. No. <laughs> I love the rebellion of teenagers. Mm. I even like it when they just look at me like I'm a sad old man and I go, well, to you I am, I'm sure. It makes me laugh. Because my daughter does that already today. My daughter's three years old. And today I told her, she was scooping her yoghurt out of the pot with her hand. Mm. And I said, oh, do you want to use a spoon instead of your hand? And she looked at me like, you sad woman. <laughs> oh, yeah. And then she picked it up and really sarcastically took like a tiny bird, half pea amount and was like, <laughs> and I was like, how has this begun at three years old? Oh, that's brilliant. It's a sign that you're in a good place, that you're going, yes, I do look irrelevant to you and that's fine because mm. I'm not trying to appeal to 15-year-olds at this stage of my life. No, no. <laughs> Although over the years I've had these really lovely moments where people who are now adults have said to me, Oh, I remember chatting with you when I was a teenager. Oh, wow. I, I go, do you? The daughter of a friend of mine, she said, oh, yeah, but Mike, you always spoke to us like we were adults. Oh. And I, did I? Because I never do with my own kids. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting with that. Like, I really remember that my best friend's dad came across to me as terrifying. And then when I was about 19, I realised he was being sarcastic uh. the whole time. And suddenly I was like, oh. <gasps> All those times when he'd sort of come in and been like, right, you're all doing this, are you? Okay, well, that's ridiculous or something. And yeah. I'd been like, oh, no, we're in big trouble. <laughs> he was just amused by us, but deadpanning it the whole time. Oh, brilliant. It was a big realisation. Mm, my wife's yeah. father did exactly that to me when I first met him. Oh, my God. Yeah. That must have been terrifying. Terrifying. Instead of that sort of, hello, come and you must be Mike. <laughs> he opened the door and went, not you again, and shut it again. <laughs> you got to admire it. I did. <laughs> About 15 minutes later, my then girlfriend and now wife opened the door and said, hello. And I went, hello. And she went, how long have you been there? I went, 15 minutes. Your dad shut the door on me. <laughs> you must have just been in the kitchen laughing. He was absolutely doing like... that. But not telling anyone. He didn't tell anybody that I was at the door. I thought he was bound to say, oh you know, God. your boyfriend's at the door. No. I mean, it's a power move. Yeah. It's a power move. And he won. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're going to put that picture. Well, we're going to put a copy of that picture because you want to put that into your office, so we're going to put a copy of the picture into the time capsule. Yeah, thank you. Also, it would be nice because I feel like that's the only photograph ever taken on a roller coaster that would be copied. Yeah. Ever. 
Yeah. <laughs> Only one. That's got <laughs> two permanent installations. So the next thing, I'm frustrated because I didn't bring it downstairs, but I'll describe it, but it's audio, so it's fine. And it's the first present I ever got. And it's from my first proper boyfriend when I was a teenager who I'm not with anymore and not in touch with anymore. And I've heard rumours that he's um, someone who shares men's rights activism on the internet now. And and I'd like to say that's nothing to do with me or my influence on him. But um, we had a really sort of lovely, fun relationship where we would make up a lot of games and card games together and just sort of, it was really lovely. And we would always make each other presents because we were skin. And for my birthday, he bought me a jar with a cork stopper full of um, rhubarb and custards. And then he made a um, little sign on it that was like condensed inspiration. Uh. And then he would like write on the back, like just one of these will provide you with the inspiration enough to write comedy or stories or anything you want. And it was such a lovely thing. And it's really rare that somebody, I don't know, makes you like a little sacred little object Mm -hmm. like that and I've just carried it with me for 20 years and what I also love about it is I only ate a couple of the sweets and they've all melted (laughs) so in the bottom of it there's just this like thick layer of goop (laughs) and I don't even dare open it because then what if it's like noxious like who knows also there was something really beautiful about it because he's really like had dyslexia but really sort of quite profound I suppose like he had real trouble writing real trouble reading like Mm. every book he's read has been an audio book and so for him to do it was a really like kind gesture and the spelling mistakes in it I used to think were just the most beautiful thing in the world Mm. I just thought it was like so poetic and so yeah I've still got it now my partner, who's the father of my child, doesn't know. It's in his house, this totem. <laughs> I was Someone else's ask, love. How does he feel about that? <laughs> my wife for years kept some letters from a, an ex-boyfriend and I was always incredibly jealous of them and sort of uh, oh. found it rather painful that she hung on to this person. Yeah, I think it is hard. But it's, but it's funny because me and my partner, I didn't meet him really till I was about 34, right. 33. Yeah. So that's a long time of life. And, and I... I I feel like, you know, there are, well, also I'm a hoarder, really, in the extreme. So I just sort of have everything in boxes just hidden anyway. <laughs> but I do feel like you can sort of commemorate something like that that was very beautiful. It's of its time and of its place and it was very meaningful, but it doesn't necessarily mean anything about the present or the future. And I like that. I think, yeah, the danger would be is if your wife was getting out the letters and saying, oh, you're nothing like Paul. He was wonderful. That's when you're in real trouble, you know, or your wife's like saying, I'm just going to frame this beautiful letter that Paul wrote me. (laughs) Just every night before she goes to sleep, she opens the jar, (laughs) sniffs the sweets, and then... (sighs) I miss him still. But the reason I chose it is because I don't have that many objects that I think are quite important in themselves Mm -hmm. in a sentimental way. Particularly something that is really worthless in itself. Yeah. Yeah. It couldn't be worth anything less. That's so true. And yet I see it as this like beautiful piece of art. And I also think it's it reminds me of like something that I think is very important, which is that you always have the capacity to kind of be creative in a situation and you always have the capacity to sort of 
do things yourself. Like I always love things that are homemade and I love people that embellish and customise their lives in their own way and Mm. stuff. And also obviously like trying to be a creative person, that's sort of the thing, isn't it? You want to be able to make things your own way. I don't know. It's a bit of a, I guess it's a bit of a It's odd that people give up on it because we all as children do it. In fact, a child wouldn't give you a card that they hadn't made or that they hadn't drawn all over. Yeah. I've got loads of those from my grandkids, and they're the ones I treasure. When they first give me one that they bought in a shop and write happy um, birthday in it, you know, then I'll go, uh, those days are gone. Yes, I agree. And also, like, when I was a teenager in particular, but no, actually my whole life, it's only just maybe the past few years when I've been too tired to do it. <laughs> the funniest things have been, like, for my partner, I once bought him about 20 birthday cards and pretended they were all from celebrities and pretended <laughs> like wrote him loads of messages and so I gave him just all these birthday cards and and I think there's just like it's a reminder to try and have fun with your life and to sort of there's a really great quote at the start of um Fahrenheit 451 where he says they give you lined paper right the other way <laughs> and I just really like that it's just oh, like yeah, yeah to have a bit of fun with it you know yeah my wife, on the very first Valentine's Day that we spent together, which was very soon after we started going out, we started going out on the 9th of February. Oh, wow. That's an oddly pressurised thing, Isn't then. it, just Because it's like, can't go too big, but can't do nothing. No, but in my booth at, at university, my little letterbox, there were five cards. And I thought, oh, wow. Yeah, there's obviously other other options available. Oh, my gosh. I'd opened them and she never asked me about them. And I said, oh, oh thanks for the card, because one was obviously from her. And uh, and I sort of hung on to this idea in my mind that there were four other girls who might have chosen me, but they were all from her. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. And she's thinking, why hasn't he said anything about the fact that I sent him five cards? She realised immediately <laughs> that she was in a relationship with an idiot. I think. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to suss these things out. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, anonymous Valentine's cards. I miss that. I really do. Mm. I mean, now, if I got an anonymous Valentine's card, obviously I would think this is from my partner. Yeah. But if, if it wasn't, I'd be like, oh, this is needless trouble here. <laughs> you know, like, I, I don't have the energy for this. <laughs> like, we do regularly talk about, like, I couldn't, I couldn't have an affair. I haven't got the time. I haven't got the organisational skills, you know. Well, I'm just going to say to you that you know February the 14th next year, that anonymous card, you'll never guess where it came from. (laughs) Oh, I'd love it if I got five. I'd be like, finally, the options are open. Finally. (laughs) There's just that funny thing where parents send their kids when they're little kids Valentine's cards. And how that is both the sweetest thing in the world, but also so inappropriate and weird. <laughs> when I was, um, I used to live in a share house and it was me and four friends and they were all guys, but with none of them did I have a, even a hint of romance. And on Valentine's Day, I used to make them all Valentine's cards and put them under their doors for fun. <laughs> just very sweet. <laughs> just to see their face. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And just so then I could be like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> there was a very beautiful woman walking around the flat earlier. I think it was Claudia Schiffer. I think it was. <laughs> There's the only other thing I was going to say is that uh, I have one item like that, which is a wooden coat hanger. And on it, it has a piece of paper that says to hang your verses on. And this takes us back to what I was talking about when I played Orlando in As You Like It. And the mother of the director gave it to me as a present. 
Oh. I'd never really done a play before. And you think, oh, my God. And I've still got it. Oh, that's so nice. But I'm not a person who hangs on to things, but it's a lovely thing to have. Some things are given at the exact right time mm. and what they mean just sort of opens something up, you know? Yeah. And I think that's really important. Oh, that's so nice. Isn't it? I just was reminded of a of a Raymond Carver poem that a friend of mine put on her Instagram yesterday and that a really great comic called Martin Moore, Martin Big Pig, He's got a very long beard and he's got a son who looks like him, but sort of 30 years younger. <laughs> and they do kind of circus shows for kids as well as stand up. They're really great. Um, but he came to my show and was so kind about it. And then he gave me this book. Oh, I've got it. And in the front, he wrote out the poem, which is it's called Late Fragment. And he says, and did you get what you wanted from this life? Even so, I did. And what did you want? To call myself beloved, to feel myself beloved on the earth. Oh, my God. It's just so beautiful. It's beautiful. And it was such a nice gift. Yeah. But I can't put that in the time capsule. It's just a book. It's not even my poem. <laughs> you put a jar full of melted sweets in there. Listen, it survived that long. It will survive a hundred years more. Also, I like the idea of people in the future opening it and being like, was this their food? You know, because this is the other thing. You have to think about the fact that this is a message to the future and the future is uncertain. And the future could be so different to now. They may look at it and say, is this what finished them off? <laughs> Listen, isn't that nicer than climate change? One powerful poison, magical poison. <laughs> it was supposed to be inspiration, but in the end it destroyed us all. That's a better opposite of origin story, extinction story. <laughs> all right, we're going to put that into the time capsule as the second item. What's your third item, Josie? Okay, this is the point in the podcast where we pause, in the hope that the pause will be filled with advertising and sponsorship details. Fingers crossed. See you in a minute. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back. That's the adverts in the middle bit done, so let's get back to Josie and find out what else she'd like to put in her time capsule. 
Okay, so this one I'll definitely put in. This is, and it's framed, but it's more for what it is. This is the manifesto of Arts Emergency. So Arts Emergency is a charity that I set up with my friend Neil. And it was because we felt very keenly that as people who weren't from privileged backgrounds, that going to university and also trying to get into the arts and humanities we felt we came up against a lot of uh, barriers and we keenly felt what a rarefied place it was in terms of class. But we also felt we were both kind of turning 30 and we felt really this combination of that we'd built up a certain level of privilege for ourselves and that that felt like something we had to kind of try and disseminate in some way. And then also we, we it was when the Conservatives got in and they were tripling, they were planning to and did triple tuition fees and cut the block grant that funded arts and humanities. Mm. So basically taking away all the state funding for those degrees and letting them sink or swim, which is obviously even worse now. And there we go. But at the time we were like, what can we do to sort of counteract this? And we set up an organisation that initially was going to be paying people's tuition fees. But then we realised that A, we'd have to find so much money and B, it would be such a drop in the ocean. So then we were thinking about what we did have and we set it up to um, run on enthusiasm and run on the fact that we knew a lot of people who were desperate Mm -hmm. to do something and had time and the inclination and so it's kind of like a very sprawling mentoring network. And it, we used to call it the Alternative Old Boys Network, but we're trying to work out a perhaps more modern slant of it. But we have a few thousand people who work in the arts and humanities or who are connected and they're on hand for people to get in touch with. And then we work with, oh, it's loads. <laughs> it's like thousands now. So you basically just said to people, look, will you come in on this on a sort of a, a casual basis when you've got time help people? Well, yeah, well, there are different levels of commitment. So there are many people who've been trained as mentors. Mm -hmm. So it's a mentorship scheme where young people from backgrounds that aren't privileged meet people in their sort of chosen field or people that they just kind of connect with. Mm -hmm. And they have a year where they meet them. But our whole thing is that we we both really love Kurt Vonnegut and we like this idea he has in one of his books about proxy families that you're assigned. <laughs> and we wanted to create this kind of community whereby you come into it at 16 and you are like mentored, but the relationship itself isn't like box ticking and it can become a kind of friendship or it can continue or, you know, you can go through that. And then when you're at uni, you still have support. And then ideally it's, when you then leave, you have some support, but also then when you're kind of in your mid-20s, you come come back to sort of help. So you sort of pay back, as it were. Yes. Yeah, we did it because I think sometimes when I look at British society, and in particular in the last 10 years, I feel like it's regressed so much in culture. And, and like statistically, you know, once you start going, okay, well, X amount of people, I think it's something like three quarters I'm so bad at recalling statistics, but we had some research commissioned and it's basically like very bad if you're not super wealthy (laughs) in the arts and stuff. So we wrote this manifesto. Um, One of the points of it is um, there are things that are bigger and better than money. We have things that those in power will never understand. And then the next point is we take it as a given that a civilised society values education, lifelong learning and creativity as a public good. So we just like wanted to write this manifesto so we could seem really like radical. Yeah. And um, I really, really treasure it. And I still stand by all of it, mm. which I think is a good start. And I, as an organisation, I don't, I'm not really involved in the day to day anymore because 
my skill set is useless. <laughs> like <laughs> I don't need someone to give a speech every day and that's all I can do. But I really love it as a thing and I'm really proud of it. And Oh yeah. And that's what I was going to say. It, it really amazes me that like, I think about like, firstly, I know the grammar school system is and remains really bad and unfair but I also look at the effect it had on culture that some people from working class backgrounds mm. were sort of, especially in the sixties. Like I'm just, I mainly just think about like Monty Python and Alan Bennett and stuff, but like people who were able to, a Melvin Bragg, able to influence culture to the extent that they were. And it, it, it's not wanting that system, but it's wanting, it's realizing that actually all that took was probably about 30,000 people. And that if we can get 30,000 people through our network to do a similar thing, it will have a profound effect on culture and it will be able to kind of have diffuse effects that might be revolutionary. Absolutely. I think you can completely change society with simple steps like that. Uh, I'm the honorary president. And in fact, this podcast sponsors a children's theatre group in Soham. Oh, wow. And this uh, brilliant young man, who is now not a young man, but he's still brilliant, he set up this theatre group and it's grown into this enormous thing and it's, it's absolutely astonishing what it's done within the community. And they've now, without any real help, they're actually on the verge of opening their own theatre. Wow, that's amazing. And I love going to see it and I'm very proud to be involved with it. But it's, as you say, it's simple steps. You know, 20 kids join and then suddenly they've got 500, 1,000 members in a small Mm. rural town. Wow. Uh, They're taking shows to Edinburgh. They've performed in New York. They've been all over the country. There's this whole line of people because it's now been going for sort of 20 years. Yes. They spread out. It's like the fungus in a wood, I always think. Yeah, but for good. For good, yeah. (laughs) It's brilliant. And that's the thing... We always talk about like one of the manifesto points is there's no recession of the imagination. But I always feel like there's no dearth of talent and there's no dearth of intelligence. The criminal waste in this country is that people are chosen from one tiny strand of society when actually it diminishes us all. Mm. knowing that there's all these people with all these wonderful ideas and minds that are being sort of ignored or thwarted, you know? Like, oh, it's so great. The world is sort of mad, isn't it? I mean, just within our own society, we have that, uh, look at the political system. If you went to Mm. Eton, you're in. If you didn't, you're out. (laughs) So that's fucking mad. Seems flawed, you know? It's crazy. It's not even a school that specialises in politics, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Like, you know how some schools about 10 years ago, they were like, we're a technology college now. We're all about, you know, the least Eton could do is rebrand itself as like School of Political Science, you know? I know, but it's crazy. You sort of go so, in fact, we're choosing all the people to run the country from one school. (laughs) It's so stupid. What? When you say it in those terms, it's gobsmacking. And then, not only that, we're choosing all the people to run the world from about four or five countries, really. Because all these other countries, you've got this mass of humanity, most of whom never learn to read. Well, also, we know that it's, it's a plan. Countries aren't underdeveloped. They're deliberately kept in a state where they can't utilise their resources and can't, mm. you know. It's funny with things like that because I feel a bit, felt a bit ignorant about world history and the, the last sort of 10 years in particular, like learning about all these amazing socialist revolutions all around the world and being like, wow, and then what happened? Oh, 
the CIA stepped in. Or, you know, just seeing that, like, oh, the countries of the power decided that that place was going to nationalise its minerals and that that was not acceptable to them. Or, no. you know, they decided that this country would no longer be functioning in the manner that it had been set up and that wasn't acceptable. Yeah, suddenly they needed to be invaded in order to help them. It's so depressing. It is depressing, I agree. I mean, so it's a brilliant thing you're doing because even just if you're only talking about one area, talking about the arts and creativity and that sort of thing, hmm. we do have an enormous influence, I think, through that area. I would hope so. And actually, if the influence is only coming from a small section of people. So, for example, if the only young actors over the last year and a half who've managed to remain actors are people who could go home to mummy and daddy, mm-hmm. then we're fucked. Mm-hmm. I think about that with comedy because it is at least a place where on some level it's easy to get into. It's not so much like... And only filmmaking is like somewhat democratised because you don't need to buy film anymore. But at the same time, it's not the same as stand-up. You show up anywhere, do five minutes. It doesn't matter who you are, where you're from. You can access that. And if you're working during the day, you can still access it, which is quite rare as well. Mm -hmm. And so, like, it is in some ways an industry like stand-up that is able to be slightly more broad in who it attracts but then exactly that like I've seen stand-ups I think are wonderful be like oh I've had to go back to the job I really thought I'd quit and I don't know if I'll ever be able to do and it's just unbearable to think this beautiful thing that made our life so much richer and brought so much joy and invigoration to people is just like withering on the vine. And that's something that is so egalitarian really not only in the sense that people from any class, I suppose you'd say, could break into it. But also, there's a sort of a language skill that you have if you've had that privilege, which will help you in something like communicating, particularly comedy and those sort of things, the use of words, the ability to speak fluently. But actually, that doesn't define comedy at all. Mm. You can have people who are just very funny using a very few words or, in fact, speaking in the way that they speak. Yes, it's about your own voice. It's not a school debating club where if you don't adhere to the right things, you don't win. It's about connecting with people by sharing like a big part of yourself. And so actually the more authentic you are, the better. And I, I often think as well that people who are from upper class backgrounds as stand-ups will struggle more because they have been more conditioned in some ways to sort of value a certain kind of propriety yeah. That isn't actually, it's not relevant on stage, you know. No, I go back to that party at Queen's College where I thought, well, I'm here and I come from a secondary modern school. <laughs> well, also you want to be like, your parents wasted all that money, didn't they? Look, I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that. I, I love that. I, I Like Mark Thomas did such a great show about his dad and about his dad making money as a roofer and loving going to fancy places and behaving sort of a bit inappropriately and slamming down money like, my money's as good as yours, mate. And I always feel that way. Like sometimes if I wanted to stay in a nice hotel for a night, I might look on the Telegraph hotels because I'm like, that's where fancy people stay. And then whenever I go, I regret it because I'm like, we don't share values. We don't share values. But if I ever do it, I'm like, bad luck, guys. They couldn't stop this money getting in, could they? I'm ruining it for you. Yeah. And of course, the bizarre thing is that most people in those situations don't really give a damn. Yes, that's true. Well, that's why life is bearable and pleasant and not awful. 
you're constantly given hope. Yes. And I think also we've been rather led by this vociferous minority mm. for about the last 10, 15 years. They've had far too much influence. I'm not saying it's one group, but so many little, tiny, unimportant groups of people who have these extreme views have mm. influenced politics and the way that society has gone for a long time now. And we ought to start bloody ignoring them. That's why rolling news channels need a new gimmick other than debates. Yeah. Because debates are so noxious and they constantly need guests and they need guests with extreme opinions. Like if rolling news coverage went into puppetry or animation or like, <laughs> or they were like, and now here's focus on the weather for three hours. You know, if there was that shift, we would feel it. You know, or even the fact that, you know, that like a bit of the news is sport, which still blows my mind because I'm like, this isn't news. This is just entertainment and games. Like, I don't resent it, but like, so maybe they need to like bring in and now art news, you know, and every day like edge out that, bring in stuff that is less, I don't even know, bring in stuff that's stupid and irrelevant even because... Rolling news is not right. It's or not just helpful. relaxing or uplifting. Yes. Let's bring back the potter's wheel. Oh, yeah. I'd watch that. The potter's wheel for 40 minutes with pan pipes on in the background. Oh, lovely. I'd like the news to be the news. I'd like it to be the weather and the pottery hour, if I'm honest. <laughs> I mean, what's the difference? What's the difference? Just have a bit of pottery on the news and it would just calm everyone down. Bring on Pretty Patel time. Sorry, Pretty, we've got to cut you off because we have three hours of the loot. <laughs> That's life now. Brilliant. I'm going to put that uh, manifesto into the time capsule then. That's a lovely thing to put in there. Oh, thanks. So now the next thing is something I really do want to get rid of. Oh, right. You're yeah, great. So... Before I had my daughter, my daughter's three, and before I had her, a couple of months, we went to Ikea, uh, which was a real trial at that stage of pregnancy. Well, we went because we we had to buy, you know, like laundry bags, like things to get ready for the baby and stuff. And um, I bought a toy stuffed panda for my partner because I thought, firstly, that he and I could cuddle it a lot and it would smell of us. We'd give it to our daughter. She'd be comforted by it. And also because I thought it would be helpful for him he could practice doing nappies on it. And because he would sort of, <laughs> it would make the whole thing a little bit more real for him because at that time I think he was finding it hard to mentally adjust to the reality of it. And both of us were a bit like, my daughter came a week before the due date and we hadn't got anything ready for her because I was like, we've got three weeks, don't worry. Yeah, and yeah. It, so it was really stressful. And um, so I bought him this toy. Oh, my God. My partner, Johnny, fell in love with that toy so much that he will not give it to our daughter. Even though she is three, he cuddles it. He loves it. It's got a name, Peg. It's got a sidekick, which is a pig called Pig, which, I mean, he doesn't even... He treats Pig constantly like he's not the favourite as well, which annoys me because he's anthropomorphised him so much that I've invested in that storyline. And I'm like, <laughs> you love Peg so much, you neglect Pig. Uh, he and he basically he loves that toy he really does I think because 
it is very significant about the birth of our daughter and he really bonded with the toy. <laughs> I should say he did bond with our daughter as well. Okay, yeah, good. <laughs> but he still loves the toy. And he just, the toy had, when we were going mad, you know, when the baby's really young, you don't sleep and you just feel so weird. And mm. we just got to a point where we were so crazed and silly. And we'd have loads of conversations with Peg and had a whole character for her. Like she's um, she's a very prim woman. <laughs> she believes a lot in, in God. She goes, she goes to church a lot. It's quite uptight as a panda, mm. you know. She's often scandalised by our artistic lifestyle. She's got a whole character. Um, she's very passive-aggressive. That's her real style. Not like pig. Pig's catchphrase is, toilet's good enough for a pig. You know, pig's very relaxed. The peg, she's become this sort of thing. And he just uses this toy to wind me up. Like, he'll be like, Josie, Josie. Like, and I, I just, honestly, he, he took the panda to some gigs in Switzerland with him. Like he takes it with him to gigs. (laughs) I I mean, I don't know whether he wants me sharing this, but tough because he's done it. He can't deny it. He basically really loves this toy and it's it's a really fun thing between us. Mm. But part of my shtick with regards to it is that I despise Peg and that I, <laughs> I don't despise her but that I definitely haven't bonded with the toy in the way he has so I'd love to just put Peg in a time capsule for a hundred years <laughs> and just let him deal with it he'll be furious you know Pig's there going I'm still here <laughs> exactly and they go yeah 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 whatever I don't care that's what he's like that's exactly it poor oh, Pig no. get his time in the limelight <laughs> and Peg is just used, I suppose, to admonish you. Is that right? Yes. He'll um, definitely use Peg to sort of say, Josie. Um, but also just to wind me up. My, my boyfriend likes to sort of go on the wind up a little bit, which is fun, <laughs> but sort of tiring at times. <laughs> it's nice to put Peg, get, have a holiday from Peg. Yeah. And then I presume that when the time capsule is open, she'll reanimate. Or in fact, she'll come out furious. <laughs> I cannot believe it. <laughs> this is incredible because I really feel like you've captured the essence of Peg already. It's a lot of fun. How old were you when your daughter was born? I was 35. It's fair enough. My wife was 21. Wow. I was 23. Oh, wow. You guys were so young. Wow. Yeah, we were. Yeah. You must have yeah. been a, a bit more energetic. That's my big regret is I wish I'd been able to do it when I was younger. Yeah, but at the same time, I, I mean, I don't know. I think it's a, it was it worked out fine. You know, we were lucky. We were lucky yeah. that, you know, that innocence, that sort of, you know, well, I don't know how I'm going to make a living. <laughs> but anyway, it would be all right. Yes. And we were. That's why I think it's good to start an artistic career when you're young, actually, and not to wait. Like when I was a kid, everyone was always like, you've got to have a plan B. And I think I was a bit like, no. And, and I think, especially between the age of about 20 and 25, I was really like, well, it will just have to work out. So on we go. Yeah. Whereas I think were I to be starting it now, having done a different career, I'd be so like, but how will it work out? And I, it's not going to work out soon enough. And I don't, you know, you wouldn't have that kind of forging ahead. No, no. Imagine. I mean, even if you'd gone into the world of arts, you'd be, I don't know, executive producer on something somewhere or, or you'd be, you know, you'd be in charge of it. You'd be running departments, and then suddenly, like, you, know, you know, actually, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go and 
stand up in a pub and talk to people, hope they laugh. Can I just say, I'm so grateful that in your imaginary vision of my other life, I'm not a failure. Like, <laughs> you're saying to me, you'd be in charge. I'm like, would I? I've made a mistake. I should have done that. <laughs> Damn it. I'd, I'd be somebody. <laughs> but, like, that's very interesting to me because in my head I'm like, well, obviously I'd be doing something miserable at a very low level. Oh, uh, right. <laughs> but I don't know why. But I think that's kind of maybe the way I was brought up or something. I don't know. Yeah, no, that may well be true that you sort of imagined that when I'd just be doing some sort of drudgery somewhere. Yeah, yeah, that I hated. Yeah, but actually the chances are I'm probably right. You've made a massive mistake in your life. Could have been You see, that's what going to public school does for you. (laughs) Could have done it. Yeah, I, I often really like making like jokes of like the biggest mistake I made was not being born into wealth. If I'd have just changed that or like, you know, yeah, <laughs> it's funny. No, I really um, I really feel glad mm. to have taken the risk of trying to do this and stuff. Yeah, well, uh, fortunately, those positions are now open because you didn't take them. And therefore, when Peg comes out, <laughs> she's perfect. Listen, if Peg was there'll be a lot more religious programming. I'll tell you that before. <laughs> Oh, I, I know what, hang on, I know what my last object's going to be. Oh, brilliant, all right. Yeah. Well, okay. Peg's gone in there. Poor thing. <laughs> I can hear her complaining as I shut the door. <laughs> What's your last thing? Also, my boyfriend's going to be so furious about me disclosing, <laughs> disclosing the world of Peg and disclosing his. But it's, it is lovely. And he does sometimes let my daughter cuddle her, but he always moans about it. He's like, our daughter's taken Peg and she's sleeping next to Peg and I can't take her off her in the middle of the night. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> She's your child's toy. That's where she's supposed to be. (laughs) And then you complain, Peg smells of our child. (laughs) (laughs) But we, I'm expecting a baby at the end of November. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, it's great. It's really fun. Like the second time around is a lot more chilled out, I think. Mm. And we've been seriously considered Peggy for a name. And I just feel like, (laughs) am I inviting a whole world of pain? We don't even know if it's a boy or a girl, actually. But like, if I were to, the only problem is like, it's like I liked the name Fred and then Johnny was like Fred West and I was like, no. no. And the same with Margaret. He's like Margaret Thatcher. I'm like, no. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. No, you've got to think of um, of good ones. But uh, the problem is if you call her Peggy and then one day you find him calling her Piggy. <laughs> but then maybe that means he's finally made his peace with Pig <laughs> no. and that Pig is finally his favourite. Or you know? he's got a favourite child. <laughs> oh, no. Mm. Yeah. He sometimes calls our daughter Little Peg, (laughs) and that is not her name. (laughs) Oh, well, I know you can't tell anybody anything about having children because it's a unique experience for everybody involved, but the one thing that is constant, I always think, is that having a second child doesn't double the amount of work. It quadruples it. Oh, do you know what the worst part is? I was reeled in by that. I was like, thank God. Oh, Mm. hell. Yeah, you always think, well, just like adding a little bit more, that's all it'll be. Yes, that's what I think. I'm doing it anyway. Yes, that's what I've been thinking, yes. Mm -hmm. Oh, God. Oh, God. (laughs) This is where the next time I speak to you, I'll be like, well, I've got a maid and a butler. It's sorted everything. (laughs) I found out that Lady Margaret Hall was supposed to supply me with a butler, so I get one free for three years. Thank you. Well, that's all you'd need for the troubling infancy period. Then send them off to some school, a boarding school. You can board them at three, can't you? Well, I'm sure you can. I'm yeah. sure you can. It's good for them. See you when you're 18, dear. Bye-bye. I'll see you for a week when you're 18 before you go off again. <laughs> what was her name? Peg. Peg, apparently. <laughs> uh, lovely. I'll show you my last item. This is a very beautiful 
brown and purple shell. Mm. And the very fact that I have it is bad because I did um, a reality television show for Bear Grylls where you get left on an island for two weeks and you have to survive on it. But I did it for charity, which I feel balances out the decadence of people who have no problems having food being like, what's it like to starve? You know, which feels a bit, I don't know, a bit tacky. But um, did it for charity, didn't receive money. Hands are clean. Yeah. Except you were 100% not allowed to take anything off the island because it was a nature reserve in Panama. But I did take this one beautiful purple shell to remind me of it. So I do, I would like to apologise to the nation of Panama (laughs) um, and indeed to the production company because I shouldn't have done it. But I put it in there because, well, partly if I put it in the time capsule, victimless crime. And no evidence. They won't know where it is. They can't dig it up. No. It's fine. Exactly. And I, what I do is I'll wipe it with a wipe before I put it in so there's none of my fingerprints on it. <laughs> no DNA. <laughs> no, no DNA. Then they'll, they'll be like, well, we can't connect it to her. <laughs> so what was it like then, being on this island? It was a really, uh, for me personally, the only way I found it challenging was emotionally because I think I went into it with this very utopian idealism with which I approach everything in my life, where I was like, we'll all be best friends, we'll be a model community, this is going to be amazing. I thought it would be challenging physically or even kind of mentally, and those weren't the problem. So I found it to be an incredibly beautiful experience, and I actually oddly felt mentally very alert and very good because I think I wasn't eating any junk food and I was sleeping outside and... Maybe, oh yeah, well, so I have ADHD, which is why I jump around from topic to topic. And um, when I found out, I found out that ADHD people would be excellent hunter-gatherers because they're very alert and fast and and sort of fit in quite well to the um, natural world. Mm -hmm. And so I then like to extrapolate now and be like, oh, that's why I found it really great. My brain was sharp. I was sleeping on the ground. But the main reason was, I had two weeks where I didn't have my phone. I wasn't in contact with the world. I was just in this very beautiful place that felt very calm and quiet. And every night I could go to sleep and watch this uh, like embroidery of stars just gather and then gently go across the sky and there were shooting stars. And Mm. it was so stunning. And I've never seen that much uh, in the sky with the naked eye ever because of light pollution and yeah. and like swimming in a tropical ocean every day. Like for me, it was absolute paradise, drinking coconut water. I mean, admittedly that is basically all we had, but <laughs> I really love coconut water, so it's not a problem. So that part of it I found really good. And it was, I like cold water swimming a lot um, and I go on about it a lot. And similarly with this, it was the only times in my life where having fat around your middle is a real advantage <laughs> and having been told my whole life that this is bad and I should hate myself and hate it, it was kind of amazing to be on this thing with like a very nice athlete who after three days couldn't tolerate it anymore because he had no more body fat. Mm. Whereas I was like, this is keeping me alive for weeks. <laughs> and and it was it was really wonderful to be like, wow, my body shape is an advantage in this yeah. and that I'm proud of it because it's keeping me alive. And-, and in fact, if you look at all people from those sort of communities, that is the shape of people. Wow. See, I was born to live on a beautiful island. So are you very sensitive to sound and noise and get overwhelmed by it? 
Yeah, I do. And it's something that it's so funny to get a diagnosis of ADHD at the age of 38 because I could look back at my whole life and be like, oh, when I first moved in with a boyfriend about 15 years ago, and I used to get so stressed when we were sleeping because there was very specific noises outside the window. Mm. And he used to sort of sometimes cover my ears and I used to get so frustrated. And he'd be like, this really isn't loud. Like, you need to just let this go. And I'd be like, I I can't. It's Mm. torturing me. Mm -hmm. And now I'm like, oh, yes, I'm very sensitive to noises. And even if I would describe them, the hell for me is a um, fire alarm slowly dying. Oh, yeah. You know, it's not like, it's like painful and the fact that it's irregular mm. so just every now and again it, you're stabbed in the brain so you just sit there and wait when's it gonna happen next <laughs> yes my whole time I'm like, it's gonna happen and it makes me feel sick uh-huh. and so yeah to be on this island where all you could hear was the sea uh, and all you could see were natural things mm. um and i think it did kind of I think I so growing up in Orpington, I feel like you will understand that <laughs> there's no nature. You know, there are nature reserves that are quite small nearby yeah. and there's sort of slightly more countryside places, but you're not near to a lake or a big river or the sea or mountains or even any decent hills. So it was not a culture that I was brought up in at all. No. You know, it wasn't like oh, after school we'll go kayaking or, you know, at the weekend we'll go on a hike. And so it's been a really wonderful thing as an adult to, like, gradually realise about the natural world and gradually realise that I love being outdoors and that I love outdoorsy stuff and love... uh, Like, I have a friend who's... um, She's a nature guide and a nature leader and is a survival expert as well. Mm. And I just really love going and doing things with her where we camp out in the wild and like start a fire with little bits of silver birch and stuff. My grandson has uh, that sensitivity to things, you know, where we went to the beach the other week and it was just too windy. Mm. The wind constantly bashing against him. He just couldn't take it at all. And that thing of noise that most people wouldn't really notice at all. You'd sort of go, what? What are you talking about? It's them talking, 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 talking. So I have a sense of it a bit, what you're talking about. It's hard. It's hard. I'm sure it's hard, yeah. But it's funny too because for me as well, some people's voices on some frequency seem to kill me but I have no control over that. And so like (laughs) one in a hundred people, I'll be like, like, what are you? (laughs) I don't know what it is, but it must be one particular frequency or one style or something. But I get that. I get very crabby sometimes when someone's walking behind me and their voice for whatever reason is just hitting me on that level. Oh, how funny. I was doing that today, listening to, to a commentator and I kept doing her voice back. And my wife said, what are you doing? I said, oh, it's just such an annoying voice, isn't it? <laughs> but that's interesting, Having because I've got a voice that has been, people have told me my voice is quite distinctive, and it's been very useful for me because, well, not, not as lucrative as I would have hoped, but it's been useful <laughs> to feel that way. It's Robin Ince's fault. Just- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's holding us back. Holding Just wanted back. to talk about books. We should be talking about products. We should be yeah. talking about brands. But, yeah, it's um, it's a funny thing because any sort of distinction in your voice probably winds up someone. Yeah. 
anything remotely interesting, there'll be someone being like, no. <laughs> someone somewhere. Yeah. I know. Well, okay, so we'll put d- into the... Oh, no, we can't. No. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you what, it was also very interesting because I met some really fascinating people. I met two people who were like stars of reality TV mm. and seeing them, knowing that they hadn't eaten for the best part of two weeks, still like doing bits for the camera in this wow. really funny sort of amazing professional way i was like wow reality tv stars are athletes they're like a breed apart what they're able to kind of produce in terms of tv i had like a whole new level of respect for them <laughs> one of the reasons i did that show was i thought to myself if i can just be a basically affable minor character i can enjoy this wonderful unusual experience mm. And not have to be too involved in the TV show. <laughs> That's basically what I did. Under the wire. Perfect. Yeah. You'll find me sitting in the corner of the beach here, just drinking coconut milk. Yeah, not saying anything particularly interesting. No, no. And when they ask you about the people you're with, you say, they're all doing amazingly well. It's incredible. <laughs> so we will put that lovely shell into the time capsule as your last item although i am concerned that um i've seen the sort of skimpy clothing that people wear when they go on those things so i want to know how you smuggled this shell out oh well we had because they were now this is a thrill at the start of the show there was a lot of illicit attempts at smuggling so one of the contestants (laughs) Mm -hmm. smuggled in a spare pair of underpants in a plastic bag (laughs) <laughs> but I think they were caught. We were given these plastic bags into which I think we were allowed to put our medication. Right. But people were definitely, somebody snuck in a hair bubble, which was absolutely frowned upon and <laughs> discovered. Um, there was a lot of controversy because one of the um, contestants had very long hair and she felt it was very unfair. And I did feel for her, but there was this, there was a lot of drama around that. And so at the end we had these plastic bags and I think I put secreted them in my pocket, you know. They must ride that boat around at the end with you all going home. They must ride that around for hours and film it, you know, from every angle. So you think, oh, are we ever going to get food? That's exactly it. Oh, my gosh, you're psychic. It was unbearable. They kept filming us with a drone and we had to run and wave. And I was thinking, this is over. This is finished. <laughs> you can't be doing this. Give me an orange. Where's my dinner? Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what it was like. And they kept making us do kind of roundup interviews at the end. And I was like, guys, just give me a can of Coca-Cola. I fulfilled my contract now, I think. Thank you very (laughs) much. I'd like to go home. (laughs) Especially because I did it for charity. Like, it's funny because at the time I was really pleased with myself. And now I'm like, should have done it for a big chunk of cash. What am I doing? (laughs) I'm an idiot. You've blown it. Oh, no. I've told about the shell. I'm never going (laughs) to. Oh, Josie, how lovely to talk to you. It's really kind of you to do this for me, and uh, and I'm a big fan, so thank you very much. Anything for the North Kent Mafia, of course. You know, this is important. (laughs) The important connections. Neil, who sat apart in residency with me, is from Swanley as well, so it's a really big deal. The the Crays, the Cray Valley. Mark Steele, Sid Cup. Oh, yeah, of course. Oh, we're taking over the world. (laughs) Just very slowly. We are basically the Eton of Kent. (laughs) You have been listening to My Time Capsule, 
with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my wonderful guest, Josie Long. We do have lots of other episodes with other lovely people already there for you to listen to, or coming up soon, so please do subscribe to this podcast. And if you have the time, please rate and maybe review us. You could also follow my time capsule or me on social media. It's Twitter mostly, but we're also on Instagram and Facebook. The theme music written and performed by Past the Peas Music is available to download or stream on Spotify, as is every episode of this podcast. But there's plenty of other places to listen to. This podcast is a cast-off production for Acast. See, there's one of them. The producer was John Fenton Stevens. Thanks for your support. Right, I'm off to re-watch that series of The Island with Bear Grylls so that I can spot Josie avoiding the camera. You know, for a long time I thought Bear Grylls was spelled B-A-R-E, as in naked, which I suppose explained its popularity. I mean, I'm not a naturist myself. I did try it once. It was a nudist philosophy convention. And the bloke next to me said, Have you read Marx? I said, yeah, yeah, I think it's these wicker chairs. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.